Welcome to Slate Spoiler Specials. I'm Allegra Frank, feeling very punchy this morning. I'm a senior editor at Slate, and today I'm joined by Slate staff writer Rebecca Onion. How's it going, Rebecca? I'm so excited to be here, and I love a punchy podcast recording. <laughs> <laughs> today, we're spoiling The Lost Daughter, Maggie Gyllenhaal's wonderful film starring Olivia Coleman recently released in theaters and on Netflix for those of us who would rather sit on our couches and watch sad movies about angry mothers. I certainly am one of those people. Rebecca, before we get into spoiling all the details, tell me, what did you think? Ah, this is the kind of movie that I was really glad to be asked to watch for a podcast because I would never have watched it on my own because it's just too, it's too deep. <laughs> it's too close to my experience. It's not even my experience. So I should say that I have a, I have a almost five-year-old daughter. Um, and the kids in this movie are, I believe they're five and seven, her flashback kids. And then um, there's a, another family at the beach that she becomes intertwined with who have a, like a four or five-year-old daughter. So all these daughters all over the place and all these mothers kind of struggling is not something that I would have chosen to watch because I like to watch uh, TV shows about spaceships and <laughs> people trying to keep the spaceships from exploding. <laughs> I'm also watching The Expanse. But um, but I'm so glad I did watch it because it provoked so many thoughts and feelings and it was really excellent. Uh, what, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely excited to talk to you about this in particular because you have the mother perspective because I... I'm not a mother. <laughs> I am a daughter. I was going to say. I, I guess yeah. I'm, yeah, I am uh, closer to co-star Dakota Johnson's age, if anything. So watching this, I found it interesting that it was going to be about like a mother who sort of resents motherhood as someone who like, you know, was the daughter who often wonders, like, I'm the one who put my mother into the position of motherhood. What did, you know, was she ready? What does she think? I mean, that's not something I think about too much, but as I age right now, I'm like, you know, I don't know if I could do what my mother did. So seeing a very vulnerable story about a mother who openly admits, yeah, I don't want to do this. I'm, I'm angry. I'm not good at this. I, it, it, it doesn't end, you know, it, it changes your life and it doesn't stop changing. It was really fascinating. And I, I loved it. It made me deeply uncomfortable. I wanted to apologize to my mother. <laughs> I never did the things that um, Leda's daughters did to her, but I certainly was a brat. I don't even think, do you think that, do you think that they were brats? I don't, maybe that's too much of a spoiler. Maybe we're jumping ahead, but I don't know. In the flashback sequences, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. How about we how about we get into it and I'll answer that question in a bit. Yeah. So, The Lost Daughter opens up. It's based on an Elena Ferrante novel. If you know the Neapolitan trilogy, she's most famous for that. This is a separate novel from that series. And instead of in the book, 
which is set in Italy. This one brings us to Greece, where Leda, played by Olivia Coleman, is a college professor who is on a working holiday, she calls it, in Greece. So Leda, we can already tell from the beginning, is a bit of a prickly lady. She, you know, is let into her sort of Airbnb. It's like a cute apartment that she's staying in. She's renting from Ed Harris, who plays Lyle. And she already is like not trying to have any conversation. She just wants to focus on herself and her books and her work. And she wants to go sit on the beach and have a good time, which honestly, very relatable, (laughs) especially right now. And much of the movie takes place on this beach. So the first day she's out there, she sees that she's not alone on this tranquil beach. First of all, she is attended to by the resort, I guess, resort assistant. Yeah, he's like a cabana boy. He's a cabana boy. Yeah. I say resort assistant. You say cabana boy. <laughs> Says how much I go on vacation. Either um, way, he's cute. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful boy, Paul Mescal, my white boy of the month, uh, every month. He shows up and, you know, Leda's like, oh, a cute cabana boy. I, I could deal with this. I like seeing this cute cabana boy who wants to bring me drinks and set up my umbrella. So, you know, it looks like things are going to be nice until we are introduced to the other vacationing group, which is, we don't get their last name, but I don't it think consists so. of, yeah. yeah, it's a big group from Queens, from New York, and they're a boisterous group, very much competing against Leda as a quiet you know, bookish type. Mm-hmm. And in this group, let's talk about the two main women in the group. Yeah. So there's Callie, who's an expecting mother, and then Nina, Dakota Johnson, who is a young mother. Um, you know, she's tattooed. She has a, I don't want to say abusive, but a sort of detached mm. husband. Yeah. Versus Callie is like, you know, she she's a queen's girl. She speaks her mind, but she's already very good with children, you can see. Mm-hmm. So what did you think of the dichotomy between Nina and Callie when we're first introduced to them on the beach? Well, it's interesting because Callie says, um, I love it. First of all, I think her full name is Callisto, which is such a cool name. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> she says, um, you know, that she tried to get pregnant. She has, she's pregnant now, but it took her a while after she got married to get pregnant. And she's kind of like, uh, seems like jealous of Nina a little bit because it happened so quickly for her. So you get the sense that Callie is maybe like a little bit older. I think she, they might be sisters-in-law. Like, it's not 100% spelled out, but I sort of assumed that Callie and Nina's husband, Tony, were brother and sister, and that Callie was Nina's sister-in-law. And she's kind of um, – Callie is like uh, like sort of like regulating Nina's – what she's doing on the beach a little bit. Like she's kind of like – seems like she's watching her a lot and trying to sort of – like she seems like a woman who's helpful with – the little girl whose name is Elena, interestingly. <laughs> Elena Ferrante is a little girl, Elena. Um, but she's also sort of seems to have a lot of suggestions in a way that uh, Nina eventually finds like off-putting and annoying. And, you know, Callie is like looking forward to motherhood and is excited about it and feels like she's fulfilling an expectation and and is, you know, is moving ahead into this situation excitedly. And um, Nina is like, uh, this is not going well for me. And then Lita, looking on from the vantage point of being 48, I believe she says she is, yeah. um, and her kids are in their 20s, is like, 
you guys have no idea. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> so there was sort of this range of attitudes towards it. But I did feel like Callie was sort of watching and regulating Nina a little bit. And that if Callie were to find out, as we find out later on, spoiler, <laughs> that Nina is both unhappy and also cheating um, on Tony, that she would tell Tony in a second. But that doesn't happen in the movie, to be clear. But I just got the sense that Callie's kind of keeping everything in line a little bit, whereas Nina is ready to step out right. of line. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and to be clear, so Nina's daughter um, is named Elena, which I feel like Elena Ferrante did very intentionally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But she's a three-year-old. And um, right, so Callie we see is like, I wouldn't say doting because she is like a very fiery lady. Yeah. But she already shows this strong maternal instinct and as you said like has a sense of loyalty to her family including her brother Tony Nina's husband that we don't see from Nina no who when we meet her I mean there's a lot of sort of gazing shots of her stretched out on her beach chair she has as I said a lot of tattoos um she has long dyed dark hair black hair yeah. she's beautiful yeah. She's beautiful. She's wearing like a skimpy bikini. It, she's awesome. She's beautiful. I wish I looked like her, but I'm not, you know, a mother. And I am not focusing on my tan line instead of uh, my daughter, if I were, you know, like. Oh, Allegra, <laughs> you really feel that way about her? Oh, my God. I don't know. The thing is, I do like her. I do like her. I have very complicated feelings. Well, I feel like we should get into that. Okay. It's like, yeah. so, you know, we see... We see her daughter, Elena, being very playful. I would say kind of annoying. Like, she has this doll she's obsessed with, which comes into play. Oh, God, the doll. She's pouring a lot of water, like, all over her mom, and she's demanding attention. And Nina's just like, oh, girl, I just want to chill. I'm on vacation, too. Like, I don't want to have to pay attention to you every five seconds. And, like, I relate to that. But at the same time, I was like, I don't feel like... I should relate to Nina as much as I do when Nina also has this child she's supposed to be paying attention to. Like, I don't want to suggest that mothers can't also enjoy tanning and wearing like and looking sexy and like being gorgeous Dakota Johnson's while also having children. But I also I think like her priorities do not lie with the child so much as herself. Oh, my God. Okay. okay, tell me. Well, this to me, this is like the crux of the entire movie. So in order to like really get into it, I do think we have to spoil what happened with Lita. Um, so the the thing you find out, I think, in the second act of the movie is that Lita in, in the flashback sequence um, when she was in when her kids were five and seven, um, she had a husband who they were both academics. They're both grad students, I believe. And she, her husband you see that her husband is sort of like, it's not explicitly said, but her husband sort of prioritizes his work over her work. And she is desperately trying, seems like they don't have very much money. She's always desperately trying to, to grab time to herself. Um, she's like often wearing headphones and listening to music and trying to work while her kids are like screaming in the next room. And they don't seem to have childcare. I'm not sure what the deal is. But what happens is she goes to a conference as a former grad student, this is like very like, <laughs> this scenario is very realistic to me. <laughs> or not realistic, I don't know. I just resonated a lot. Um, she gets asked to go to a conference by an older mentor. And while she's at the conference, she has a moment of like shine, like a star academic who's played by Peter Skarsgård, who's 
very handsome in this movie, a cameo uh, for Maggie's husband. Yes. <laughs> He's uh, like a star academic that everyone loves. And he mentions in his paper that he read a paper of hers. See, he he pays attention to her. Mm-hmm. And and he, you know, he basically lauds the paper, her argument. And she basically, she's at this conference without her kids. She's able to be like in this adult space of like sort of drip like a like focused academic adult conversation. And she falls in love with this guy and they end up having an affair and she leaves her kids. Right. Um for three years. Yeah. For three years. Yes. Which to me is utterly like, I'm like, that's incomprehensible to me. But I think what the movie is doing with all of these moments of, um, like, interrogating what it means to be an adult and want to have your own, like, time while also having kids. At one point, I couldn't find it again, but she, uh, the young Leda quotes to the Peter Sarsgaard character, her lover, um, a piece of poetry that's it's something like attention is the ultimate attention paid is the ultimate form of generosity. Mm. And the whole sort of back and forth about her maternal experience is whether like she is she seems like she had kids too young, which I think Nina did too, and she wasn't ready for her time to be taken by child time. As children have like an entirely different <laughs> um one of the biggest, I think sources of discontent in maybe in motherhood or fatherhood. I don't know. Maybe I can't blanket say that's the biggest source of discontent. But (laughs) um, a big problem, I would say, I'll put it this way, is that what children, how children kind of want to be, which is to sort of like drift and be like a little bit um, like spontaneous and like fun. And and they, they do sort of want like a certain degree of attention from parents is not very compatible with if you have if you have anything you want to get done, <laughs> it's not compatible. And so um, a big topic of discussion among moms, maybe especially, but also parents in general, is like how do we like align ourselves with that in children? And like the best pieces of advice that I've ever gotten have been pieces of advice that have allowed me to like figure out ways to align myself with that while also just not like absolutely murdering my own need for focus and to get things done. And it's something that is so much harder when you when you don't have resources. And so I think that's what's happening with Nina. But you sort of saw it as a different uh, – uh, you were a little feeling a little bit more judgmental of it, maybe. I, I think – I was feeling judgmental of everyone, is what I'll say. Okay. And I think you're clarifying so much for me, again, from the mother perspective that I appreciate a ton. And again, it's making me think of my own mother and the choices she made. Similarly, like she was, I mean, she was working full time, but she was a professor and also pursuing her own. Oh. Yeah. And like, there you go. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Actually, yeah, she was also a professor, but also like pursuing like a PhD and, that's something she had to give up for various reasons, but children included. And yeah, the, it, I completely like what you said about the way that children operate in the time they live, the times that they are like attuned to are not compatible with you if you're trying to get your own things done and like tweaking that. Yeah. And what we learned from Leda is that she doesn't manage to tweak that to fit the children in. I mean, she just kind of, yeah, she just sort of, chooses she sees it as a choice she has to make and i'm like oh well come on you you have the kid you had two kids i mean maybe you know like 
there's some level of planning involved, but maybe not. I don't know what circumstances the kids came into this world under. Yeah, right, right. We don't get to find that out, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. But right, like she is really young, but it is a responsibility that you have to take on. And so I I found myself sympathetic, but not empathetic toward Leda. I like how she says at the very beginning, she says to Nina or uh, to Callisto, Children are a crushing responsibility. Yes. <laughs> and okay, we're going to talk more about how their relationships, all the women's relationships to each other evolve after this break. And we're back. Hello. So we are just talking about the crushing responsibility of motherhood, <laughs> as, as Leda says it, and how Leda and fellow mothers, Callie and uh, Nina, contend with that responsibility so we mentioned before the doll which becomes oh god (laughs) which becomes a huge part of the movie it becomes a point of conflict it becomes a symbol it becomes a really gross object that needs a deep clean uh (laughs) it, it was really by the end of the movie i was like just get her a new doll you don't you don't need the same doll. But um two things happen that we should mention. One, when Leda meets Nina and Callie and sees the family at the beach for one of the first times, Nina, who isn't really paying much attention, you know, she she's playing in the water and then she comes out and she doesn't know where Elena is. No one knows where Elena has run off to. And she's freaking out. She's running around. She's asking everyone if they've seen her. This is when Leda and Nina have their first interaction. And Leda ends up finding Elena, perhaps because she has that maternal instinct, you know, the the maternal compass inside. But Or she's just been through this before and she knows, okay, the kids go to the place you're never going to look. <laughs> um, so she finds Elena, brings her back. Nina and Callie are so grateful And this has softened Leda up to them, at least. They are now very Hmm. grateful and think, okay, this hardcore lady is maybe a little nicer than we think. So, you know, that endears Leda to that whole family. And that's when we start to see, you know, that Leda can relate to Nina because she's had her own kids do things that stress her out. You know, in a flashback, we see Leda. And in those flashbacks, Jesse Buckley plays her. And she does a great job as well. Great job. Yeah. Um, So she gives Bianca her favorite doll from her childhood. And Bianca, she finds, ends up drawing all over the doll. And Leda is so hurt and so angered by this that she grabs the doll, yells at Bianca, and throws the doll out the window. And I was, I think I yelled. I was like, oh my God. One, because <laughs> I I can't imagine doing something like that in front of your child because that's like such an irrational and extreme move. Like if an adult does that in front of me, I'm like, girl, chill. But at the same time, I have been Bianca where I remembered that my mom gave my sister and I this doll that she had been given. It wasn't like her childhood possession, but it was this doll she really loved. And she's like, okay, like, don't don't do anything crazy to this doll. Like, you can play with her. I'm not going to say you can't. It's a doll. But, like, I really want her to be something that we show off. Like, it was this beautiful, large doll. And then my sister and I, when my mom comes home, she finds we've cut all of the doll's hair off. Oh, classic. We've, like, broken yeah. off one of her limbs. We did her makeup. Like, 
And, you know, my mom was so, I imagine, so hurt by that. But my mom didn't throw the doll out the window. Well, <laughs> your mom probably thought, I mean, the truth is that that just means that the kid was not old enough to give the doll to. Mm. And you messed up. Right. I mean, I'll say that. And then I also will say, going back to the the sort of disconnect between children and adults, is that I really, like, the the truism about parenting that I 100% think is true that I heard when before I had a kid and didn't really understand is that children pick up on your energy like extremely deeply. And I think Bianca, like throughout, which is why I was interested to hear you call her a brat, <laughs> throughout, the, throughout the flashbacks, mm-hmm. she can feel that her mom, like ch- parents are like children's like son. Like they're like the most important celebrity. Like <laughs> the most important celebrity. I know. You know, they're like gods in, in a kid's life, right? And like, especially if it's, you know, the a parent is like a strong attachment figure or whatever. And like, so Bianca is just like watching Leda. The movie did this so well, I felt like. Bianca is like sponging up Leda's discontent. And you can see in the, in the like, the parts of her relationships with um, the the kids that go well, that when she is happy and like present, she is like a charming, beautiful figure to them. Like the parts where she's, there's a recurring scene where she um, she shows them how to peel an orange. Like, so the peel comes off in a long snake and it's like such a beautiful childhood memory for them. And like, you know, it's like this like whimsical moment where she like sings a little song and it's like this recurring theme in their life. Yeah. And then, so you they sometimes get that later and then sometimes they get the one who's there but not there and like can't can't be with them and is like unhappy to the degree that she actually leaves them eventually. <laughs> so like Bianca, the things that she does, like where she is it her or Martha who or Marta who um just like whines and begs to be her for her finger to be kissed when it's like she has like a boo-boo on her finger <laughs> and she keeps going, you have to kiss it, you have to kiss it, you have to kiss it, you have to kiss it. I was like, oh my God, I can't watch this. I think it's her sister who herself yeah, yeah, is yeah. not like her little slapping sister. her mother, but yeah, has her own her own things. Yeah. Oh yeah, Bianca slaps her too. Oh, my daughter slaps. Allegra, I can't if you're gonna have kids, I can't wait for you to have kids so that you can <laughs> understand <laughs> a little better what this is like. But if they can they know when you're not with them and they press on it. And that's what Bianca is doing. She's pressing, 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 pressing. Mm-hmm. And it ma- it makes their relationship like a like a one long conflict, basically. And then you see it reiterated in Nina and Elena when Nina, so Elena, after this doll is lost that you're talking about, Elena basically goes off the rails and Nina tells Leda, you know, she can't sleep without me in the bed. I haven't slept in days. I'm so tired. Like I'm, I'm overwhelmed. And, uh, and there, so that's when the scene where um, Nina is like lying on the beach chair and Elena is kind of like circling her being like, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, like whatever. (laughs) Um, Like that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where like, to me, that was like a little mirror of what happened with Bianca where, Elena is basically like, I like the most important person in the world to me is like not responding, like press, 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 press. Right. To me, that's like a heartbreaking scene. Like, and it's not even like I blame the mom or blame the kid for it. I just am like, I hate seeing that. <laughs> like, that's so upsetting to me. Man, it's so, I love that I get to talk to you about this because everyone that I talked <laughs> to was like, you know, non-mothers. I have not spoken to a single mother about this oh, movie. <laughs> so everyone, you know, we we were kids and we're like, oh yeah, I was that brat. Like we don't have that understanding of, oh, we were feeding off our mother's energies and like my mom wasn't paying attention to me. And therefore, of course, I was like 
hurt and try and get her attention. You or your mom was thinking about something. Like your mom had a lot on their mind. <laughs> and it's like not something that can be explained to a child. Like, oh, sorry, I can't tell you that I'm like secretly sneaking off with the cabana boy to like. Right. And like I'm like worried that I had a child with the wrong man, which I think is Nina's like deep problem. Like she had a child with Tony who like turns out to be kind of a dick. Like, it's interesting too because like, yeah, I was – you know, I was just judging them on their own actions and not even thinking about like, oh, you know, we don't know what our mothers are doing. Like, I didn't even think of them as mothers in those instances, I guess. Like, I I did in the sense of like, oh, you're cheating on your husband. That's bad. But I wasn't like, oh, you know, of course, like Elena has no understanding of her mother's life that does not revolve around her. And because for me, of course not. Yeah. I'm like, I've never thought about that for my own parents. Like, that's just not a thing. They don't have lives outside of me. And you're not supposed to. Right. Like I'm 28 years old and I still don't have any questions. Like, I mean, I have questions, I guess, but I also am like, they didn't do anything without me. I don't care. Like (laughs) anything that didn't have to do with me, I don't care. It didn't happen. That's like the way of the world. And that's like, I mean, that's just what it is between parents and children to some degree. I mean, but I think one of the weird things about parenthood is you have to like coming to terms with the fact that your kid is not going to change their behavior because of how you feel (laughs) or like that you're just because you're having a bad day doesn't mean that they don't need you is like, that's why it's a crushing responsibility because you're like, it's not just, oh, I have to get snacks for them all the time. It's also like, if I'm in a bad mood, I have to figure out how to like not be in a bad mood with them or like figure out how to get help so I don't have to be around them or like just figure out what to do to not make this horrible for everybody. Right. It's overwhelming. But that's why watching this movie triggered so many thoughts for me because I just was like, oh my God, all these people are just miserable. (laughs) They were. So Elena is lost and then found by Leda. Yeah. But then she later on, Leda in an act of, I don't know, vengeance, anger, an act that I'm still trying to untangle the emotion behind. She steals Elena's treasured doll she has this doll she's so attached to, which like, of course, you know, everyone has that, every child. It's a really ugly doll and it's really gross. And again, she needs a new one, but I get it. You know, we all have that. So Elena or Leda walks off with it in her bag. And Elena, when she realizes she doesn't have her doll, starts freaking out. She lost her best friend. And Nina, of course, now has this added stress of my daughter will not stop crying. Like, she can't find the stall. I can't find the stall. They end up putting missing posters up around the resort. Like it's become that yeah. intense. Meanwhile, we see that Leda has this doll that she's sort of preening in her apartment in her Airbnb. She's like sleeping with it too. She's like doing, yeah. She's she's doting on it, but she's also at the same time sort of ashamed of herself. You know, we see at one moment she considers returning it to Nina. And that's when she finds Nina hooking up with white guy of the month, Paul Nescal, my boyfriend. And I was offended because he's my boyfriend. But um, (laughs) so, you know, what, what did you make of the doll situation? Because in the end, I mean, the doll comes to a head, but we can, I think we can fairly say the doll is never properly returned. I was so frustrated throughout this movie that she didn't return the doll. I just was like, what? Give the freaking doll back. I felt a little bit like it was on the part of the filmmakers, a orchestrated bit of tension. Like I sort of was like, this doesn't make any sense for her character. Like, I don't get this. Like, what's the point of this? And then after I finished watching the movie and eventually she does 
in the final climactic scene of the movie, give the doll back to Nina. But uh, we can talk about what unfolds after that later. But I, th- I think I know why she took it. I think she took it because she sort of wanted to, like, give Nina's situation some catharsis, like, in some way. Like, I sort of f- felt like she wanted Nina to see how bad things were in her life or something. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, maybe I'm projecting now that I articulate it. But I sort of think that she she saw Nina and thought to herself, like, she even says at the end of the movie, I think the last thing she says to Nina is, it doesn't get better. Like, Nina begs her, basically, Sit, tell me it gets better. And she says, nope, it doesn't get better. Right. Um, and I, I sort of almost thought that she was trying to, like, bring that situation to a head in a way by taking the doll. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she, I mean, she explains it herself by just saying, I'm not a nice person. You know, I'm just, like, not good. <laughs> I don't know. Like, she did sort of seem a little bit like a person who sometimes would just be, would just do, like, an antisocial thing for, like, whatever reason. Like, she just seemed like she wanted to claim space by doing something that was unexpected. But I don't know. I think my other explanation also, like, satisfies me a little bit more. But I'm not 100% sure which one the filmmakers might have intended. I think that's a or a read that really resonates with me. And I am dying to know a further read from you on Nina and Leda's other big conflict, which is White Guy of the Month, Paul Mescal, and how that's mirrored <laughs> by, as you teased before, Leda's relationship when she was Nina's age with Peter Skarsgård, a.k.a. Maggie Gyllenhaal's husband. But we're going to go to another break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about affairs of all kinds. If you enjoy spoiler specials, the best way to support the show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. It's $1 for the first month, and it's a very nice $69 a year after that. And you get no ads on any Slate podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate website, which is access to every article and advice column on Slate without ever hitting the paywall, bonus segments or episodes of spoiler specials and slow burn, political gabfest, culture gabfest, hit parade, hang up and listen, Slate money, mom and dad are fighting, working, the waves, big mood, little mood. We have a lot of podcasts. This show would not be possible without support. Slate Plus helps keep the show going. To join today, go to slate.com slash spoiler plus. Again, that's slate.com slash spoiler plus. And we are back. So again, beautiful read on the doll situation from you, Rebecca, of it is confusing. I think part of what you captured is it's it's not a straightforward black and white situation of she wanted to teach Nina a lesson and or she is mean. Like, you know, there's a lot of components to it. And I think that speaks to the wonderful ambiguity that does persist throughout this film. Yeah. Especially in many of Leda's choices. And that, as you mentioned before, there is one that is very complex in the flashback scene, uh, the flashback element of the film, which is her affair with Peter Sarsgaard, who plays this, I would say, a scholar, uh, a complete scholar who is a fan of hers. A star. Yeah. A star academic. A star academic. (laughs) Mutual fans of each other. And then she ends up falling for him. So. You talked about how, you know, he she ended up leaving her kids for him for three years and how that's unfathomable. But 
in contrast to what Nina does, which is a, I mean, a vacation hookup with Will, Paul Mescal, what do you make of that parallel between the two? Because that was like a big striking change in Leda's life. That's sort of like, okay, she did this huge thing that we would probably consider, you know, a discretion. She abandoned her kids for a man. Meanwhile, Nina, you know, she didn't abandon her daughter for a man, but she is cheating on her husband for a man. So how did you comport those two subplots? Uh, It's so interesting because I think I can't remember how Nina describes it to Leda when she explains it, but she kind of like dismisses the whole dalliance a little bit. Like she just sort of is like, yeah, this is just like something for me or whatever. Like she just kind of, but in comparison to what happens to young Leda, which is that she she has like a storm in her life when she meets this man. And it's like a storm of attraction, but it's also a storm of like his recognition of her scholarship, which is like a recognition of her mind it makes like a deep change. Like it makes it completely obvious to her what she needs to do. Whereas Nina seems like she hasn't realized, like she doesn't know her situation, which is why I sort of came up with this idea of like, maybe Leda stole the doll to force her to recognize her situation because Nina just seems like she's deeply unhappy and she's in denial about everything. She sort of like explains her marriage to Leda saying like, what does she say? She says like, he thinks I'm so beautiful. He says my breasts fit in his hand. <laughs> uh, like that kind of thing. And I'm like, oh my God, like what a 20 something, no offense, Allegra. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> oh God. Like she has a kid with this man, but like she also like, she doesn't want to see him when he appears suddenly in the marketplace at one point. And, you know, uh, Leda says, oh, there's your husband. She's like, he's not supposed to be here till tomorrow. Like, and then she like goes over to him and like performs this great like moment of welcome where she like jumps up on his neck and like wraps her legs around his waist. And it's like this great like, uh, like, oh, I love you so much kind of thing. Oh, you've just seen her sort of complain a little bit, but not recognize that she even has complaints. Right. Which is a different sort of moment of rupture in a way. What's interesting to me is how she tried to conscript Leda specifically into her actions too, right? Like she, after Leda sees Nina and Will hooking up and like Leda having observed and learning from Nina specifically about her own relationship to her husband, like Will meets her at her apartment and says, hey, can we borrow your apartment for a couple hours? Because Nina's husband is here and we want to like, basically, we want to hook up in a safe place. And Nina suggested you. And I thought that was a really like that was the most specific and close intertwining of the two of anything like Nina thinking, Oh, Leda could absolutely relate. And we sort of understand that she can, but she also is, I think, I don't know if judgmental, but she does not want to participate in what Nina is doing. Do you think that's true? I thought she just wanted, she was fine to participate, but she wanted Nina to tell her herself. She wanted to have a conversation with her. I interpreted it as she wanted to like really hear from Nina what this meant and maybe also try to like have a deeper conversation with her about what it meant. I, I don't know. Like, I, right. It goes back to my question of whether, like, it, to put it bluntly, she wants Nina to leave Tony. Yeah, that's a great question because she does say to Will, she doesn't just say flat out, no, she does say, why didn't Nina? ask me. Yeah. So that's a great question. And I mean, ultimately, she does have that, 
I would say deeper conversation because, you know, Nina does end up coming to the apartment and discovering the doll there. Um, she finds that Leda has the doll and has been hiding it. She doesn't even discover the doll. Leda gives it to her. She says, I have this for and you. And I've had it. And gives it back I've to her. I've had it this whole time. So... Yeah, that complicated it for me because I saw it as like Leda doesn't want to have the direct participation, but then also she does want to talk to Nina, perhaps because it's like maybe she does want to discourage her from having this, like being with her husband, like telling her don't be with your husband anymore <laughs> or whatever. Not not that straightforwardly, but at the same time, not just wanting to like be a catalyst for blowing up that relationship in the same way that Nina sort of did, or Leda sort of did. I don't know. I found that such a complicated thing because I was like, is Leda trying to dissuade Nina from making the same choices that she made or just trying to teach her how to make them more intelligent? Right, slyly. Yeah. Well, it's also, there's a weird aspect to it too, because throughout the movie, you're sort of, um, there's like intimations that the family is violent, that this like extended family of Greek Americans from Queens is like, maybe like involved with the mafia, or I think I've read somewhere up oh, probably in Marissa's piece for Slate about the difference between the novel and the book that in the book, they are like more explicitly coded as Neapolitan mafia of some kind. Um, but in in this movie, we just hear from the Ed Harris Lyle character, you know, they're not good people, he says, like, don't, or what does Will say that? Somebody tells Leda, be careful. I think it is Will, yeah. And so that was another thing where I thought, I wonder if like maybe that's why she wanted to talk to Nina first or like she needs to be a little bit like on the down low about it. But since when does Leda ever try to be on the down low about anything with anyone? Like she just says what she means. Right. But in the end, it's uh, actually Nina who's like a physical threat to her because this is the biggest spoiler of the, of the episode. But when Leda gives Nina the doll back, Nina stabs her with a hairpin that Leda had given her. Right. The uh, Chekhov's hairpin. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Earlier in the movie, we'd seen Leda offer to help Nina keep her giant sun hat fixed on her head by giving her this like long, almost looks like an antique or something. No one uses them anymore. Like a long hairpin, probably like four inches long hat pin that she said, my grandmother used to keep her hat on like this. I mean, it is shocking. It's a shocking moment of violence in a movie that is just simmering with anger and nothing is so overt. Yeah. But then, yeah, she, Nina stabs her and leaves, right? Yeah. And then, then the movie becomes more wistful, less grounded after that, as we see Leda kind of driving off, still bleeding, you know, just kind of like sitting with her thoughts in a speeding car I know there's some conversation about whether or not Leda dies. I don't think she dies. I think having that conversation misses the point of this film, which is that it is an elegiac interrogation of motherhood. And to say like she dies at the end is just like that's not the point of this movie. But what did you what did you think of how it does turn into the violent and how it ends, which is with a phone call to the famous Bianca? Well, I thought it was perfect to end with the actual daughters on the phone. Going back to the themes of like attention and connection. And it's interesting because at one point Nina asks Leda before she stabs her, she says, well, after you left them, like, why did you go back? Because she's gone for three years between when they're, and she leaves when they're five and seven. So she would have come back when they're eight and 10. And she says, well, I came back because I missed them. 
And so it was her feelings that brought her back, not like any sense of duty or like any sense of obligation to the daughters. And she says, that's when she says, oh, I'm not a good person. (laughs) So to me, it made sense that the movie would end with her, you know, connecting with them on the phone and like clearly being happy to do so. Like she's smiling. So this is the debate. Like she she takes an orange out. She's like lying on the beach having been stabbed, <laughs> which thank you for pulling over and not continuing to drive when you're like bleeding in your internal organs, Leda. But she, yeah, so she's, she's dr- trying to drive. She pulls over. She goes to the beach. She stumbles. She falls. And then she gets woken up by a, um, basically a wave slapping her in the face. And then she sits up and then she talks to them on the phone and then she has an orange with her, which is sort of like this like um, visual memory of the good times of their childhood and like the times when she felt like she was actually providing the kind of maternal connection that they'd remember in a good way. Right, because we do see in the flashbacks her peeling an orange for her kids very gratefully. Yes, and it's like a moment where... You know, they say in parenting advice, like, try to figure out activities that both you and your kids enjoy. And you can tell in those scenes that's like, she's enjoying it and they're enjoying it. Like, they both like it. And that's why they ask her to do it so much. So the orange at the end is like this very tangible reminder of those parts of her mothering. Right. That was such a resonant thing. I'm curious if there's an orange in your relationship with your daughter. Like, Oh, yeah. Tons. Because it is always a, f- a fruit, I feel like. Like, I used to ask my dad to cut my apples for me, like, in half. And he was like, can't you just eat an apple? Like, you know, I'd be 12 and still asking. And he'd be like, can't you just bite into the apple? But it was like, I like having this with you, like having this little moment with you where you cut it for me and you take out the seeds. See, Allegra, (laughs) you do get it because that is the thing. With a five-year-old daughter, I can tell you, they keep asking you to do stuff that they are learning how to do. And it can be very frustrating when you're in a hurry. This very morning, I found myself saying yet again, you can brush your own teeth. Why do you need me to do it? Like, right. And I'm like, I've, I'm a mother who's read all of the advice that basically says they ask you to do it because they want to connect with you. And I'm like, I know, but freaking, I'm trying to get to work so I can record a podcast at 1030. Yeah. <laughs> like, please just do it. And so, yeah. So the orange is like this powerful symbol of like, the, you know, she's giving into caregiving a little bit. By thinking about it. Right. But uh, I want to go back also real quick. So you mentioned for the phone call, you saw it as a happy thing. Oh, yeah. You saw it as Leda enjoying having this phone call. But what the phone call really reminded me of was going back when um, Leda, when we see her first having this relationship with Peter Sarsgaard, and she's at a hotel, and she's like, oh, I got to call the kids. And Afterwards, she hangs up and she's like, I hate talking to my kids on the phone. And Peter Sarsgaard is like, don't say that. Don't say. And she's like, no, it's true. I hate talking to them on the phone. And that's what I was reminded of. That's right. That's right. And and then she says, and, and they, they hate, hate it, it too. too. And obviously, you know, that was um, uh, many years ago and her daughters are older. So you're, you're talking to adults on the phone now. But I still wonder if this is just like a sign of like a maternal obligation that she continues to keep up. Oh, interesting. I wonder. I wonder. See, amb- ambiguous. It's beautiful that way. Yeah. I mean, because obviously, like, I saw it as the two competing things of, like, the things she hates and the things she loves about being a mother. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The phone and the orange. Yeah. So it leaves us in this ambiguous place, which personally I loved. And I think 
I, I liked that it didn't tie up all the loose ends because there's no way to tie up the loose ends of like your past, uh, your past haunting you forever. Um, but I have one last question for you and then we'll wrap up. This is something that came up in my conversations with my friends about this film. And maybe it's a little cruel, but oh boy, I can't wait. Something that happens a lot in this movie is people ask Leda her age and everyone's like, you're no, there's no way you're a day over 40. And like every single person says this and she's like, nope, you can guess. And like Ed Harris is like, you're 42, 43, 44. And then when he gets to 48, he's like, what? What did you like? I feel like this woman looks 48. She's beautiful. There's nothing like 48 is not even that old. But I was like, what is why are they harping on this? What did you think of that? Because I was like laughing every time. I was like, bitch, this girl is 48. Like she's not 40. Sorry. First of all, I agree. I think Olivia Coleman, so beautiful. And I think beautiful queen. Yeah, 100% looks 48. And I, I don't know how old she is in real life, but I felt like that was, um, I, I don't know. I think that that was supposed to, trying to sort of play with the idea that once you're that old, <laughs> she, she says, being 44, people start to kind of um, like coddle you a little bit in that way. Like they like say things like that in order to like make you feel better <laughs> about yourself um, a little bit. And, and, I sort of felt like that stuff was in the movie to to sort of contrast with Leda's like, like Leda, I think Leda 100% knows what she looks like. Like, I don't think she was, do you know what I mean? Like, I think, mm-hmm. I think it sort of contrasts with Leda's bluntness a little bit and shows us that she is um, like moving in a world that sees her like her age and her status as a person who's at this beach resort alone as like somewhat pitiable and she is not a pitiable person in my mind. Right, no. And I think it shows us the the difference between the, the way the world perceives her and the way she sort of perceives herself. And not in terms of appearance, but in terms of like her status. I don't know. What do you think? I think that's that totally makes sense to me. And I also thought of it as like, you know, if you're 48, like – there's in a heteronormative society, patriarchal society, like, okay, you have kids, you're maternal, like you talk about your kids, you know, like she doesn't let on any of those maternal aspects of her life yeah. because she doesn't have the traditional maternal instincts. And so when everyone's like, oh, you seem so young, you're probably 40. I saw it as like, they don't see her as, you know, they see her as like a motherless woman who has not been where worn down yet by the burden of children. I see what you mean. You know, like okay. she doesn't bear any of the markers. Not saying like, you know, like being a mother, like it ages you. <laughs> I'm so cruel. I'm going to be like, yeah, come on, Allegra. <laughs> I know I'm going to have a kid and then be like gray wrinkle. Like I'm immediately going to have a cane. That's what I deserve. But you know, like you look at a 40 year old who doesn't have kids and you look at a 40 year old who does have kids and even just like how tired they seem, it's different. Yeah, no. So I think she probably has not been uh, worn down to the same extent as even someone like, you know, someone like Nina, perhaps. I mean, she definitely went through it, but. Well, she's also like, she's there at this family beach resort alone with her, bu- with her books, you know? Right. She's able to enjoy herself in a way that these other ones, these other ones, the other mothers these other women. These other mothers are um, like trying to figure out if the cooler has enough like water in it for everybody to last like f- five hours at the beach or whatever. 
like they think it's sad that she's there alone, but she's like, no, this is all I ever wanted. Yeah. So, I mean, good for you, Liv. You look you look beautiful, but you'd look beautiful anyway. And Rebecca, you're beautiful too. Oh, thank you, Allegra. This was so fun to talk to you, Rebecca. I'm, I really want to get my own mother to watch because I think it would be a good way for us to have a conversation about her own relationship to being a mom. And yeah. maybe one day, many years from now, you'll, you'll be able to watch it with your daughter and oh my God. <laughs> see what she thinks, if it triggers anything for her. I just had the idea of watching it with her right now and how quickly she'd be like, what are these people doing? <laughs> <laughs> just be like, this is boring and go away. Yeah, just I don't know how many minutes you'd make it, but I I was glad to discuss it with a mom. Uh, truly, I'm I'm so lucky to be able to get your perspective on all of this. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me watch it. I enjoyed it. That is our show. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other positive-only feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Jasmine Ellis. Our managing producer is Asha Saluja. For Rebecca Onion, I'm Allegra Frank. Thank you for listening.